My text today comes from Genesis 1, verse 27, which says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let me ask you, what do 50 Roman Catholic bishops, over 100 of the most respected evangelical leaders, and the patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church, along with a half a million individual Christians, what do they all have in common? What they have in common is that over the past two years, they have all signed what is called the Manhattan Declaration. The Manhattan Declaration, which is a statement for the common good from the Christian community that says, in our consciences, we believe that our day requires us to come together and to stand and speak about three things. And we are called and compelled to come where we have our theological differences, across those differences, we are called to come and speak about the sanctity of human life because we are for life, and to speak in favor of the preservation and the honoring of traditional families and to stand against the trend of our day that wants to squash public discourse about religion and to insist with the First Amendment of our Constitution that we believe in the freedom of religion. Over half a million Christians, 50 Catholic bishops, 100 evangelical leaders, the patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church have all this in common. Now, I told you about this in the past. But what's very interesting is that something happened over Thanksgiving that didn't get a lot of press. At Thanksgiving, um, there was a change at the Apple store. Now, Apple makes the iPod and the iPad and the iPhone, and, and there are dozens and dozens, hundreds of what are called applications, or what do we call them? Apps of all kinds. And one of the apps was produced by the Manhattan Declaration Organization where you could download the Manhattan Declaration app from the App Store and it was developed, you could sign it, you could send it to friends, and it was given a 4 plus rating. That is, it was without any objectionable material and it was, uh, it was considered a very good app and lots and lots of people used it until Thanksgiving. And then, some lobbyists got together and approached, I believe, Steve Jobs and, and the muckety-mucks at Apple, and they came and they said, this document is filled with offensive language. And we object to you selling this. And do you know what Apple did? They removed it from their store. Now, I defy anyone here to read the Manhattan Declaration 
and to find anything that is offensive in that document. In fact, there is a lot that is so exquisitely loving in that document. You can see the preamble on the back of your bulletin uh, sermon outline. But when it comes to thinking and public discourse about the sanctity of human life, the preservation of the traditional family, and even about freedom of religion, we are told by the cultural elite in our day that the tide only flows in one direction and that Christians just need to adapt. That's what we're told. Well, patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church, 50 Roman Catholic bishops, and over half a million individual Christians beg to differ and to say, no, the dialogue needs to continue, the light needs to shine, the voice needs to be heard. Now look, this is not new for the church of Jesus Christ, for the people of God. For over 2,000 years, it's been the church that has preached the Word and that has promoted justice and compassion for those who are hurting and for those who are broken and suffering. And while we acknowledge that, that uh, the church has often not been a very good witness in the world, and, and I myself don't present myself as a great example of what it means to be a witness in the world, nevertheless, <laughs> look at our 2,000-year history, and when the barbarian hordes overran Europe, it was the Christians who preserved culture and who cared for the poor and the oppressed. And when slavery was the financial engine of the British Empire, it was John Wesley and William Wilberforce who stood against the trend and the tide and overturned the commitment of the British financial system to slavery and brought it to an end. And so in the United States, it was Christians who spoke against and laid down their lives to stop the evil of slavery. It was Christian people who stood with women in the women's suffrage movement and brought to women the right to vote because they were created in God's image, male and female. And in the 1950s and 1960s in the civil rights movement, it was Christians speaking Scripture that led the change in the civil rights movement. Today, where there is human trafficking and the and, and, and sex slavery. Who is it that's on the forefront in Thailand, in Pakistan, in Bangladesh, throughout Southeast Asia and India? It is Christians who are going and risking their lives in dangerous places, seeking to stand against this horrible human trafficking. And the list goes on. I could, I could go... Uh, how, how many hospitals bear the name of a Christian or of, a, of, or of a church. And so, if you would bring up the screen for me. And I don't have my little clicker today. I think it's been um, somehow misplaced. But the, the Bible regards life in the womb as, and please, fully human. We read that earlier together today. God formed us in the womb. And when little John was in Elizabeth's womb and he met Mary and she was carrying Jesus, what did he do? He leapt inside his mother's womb at the voice in the presence of his Savior. 
And this is mysterious, but the Bible clearly teaches that each child is fully human, and it is not above your pay grade to know this. Each child has their own fingerprint, their own blood type, responds to their mother's voice in the womb. And they are deserving of protection of law. In Exodus 21, thousands of years ago, in an obscure little passage talking about Jewish laws, even there, if a person caused a miscarriage through violence, that there was protection. It was a legal issue of the day. So, friends, you can turn that off. You can go to the next. We are fully deserving of, of uh, each child is worthy of human life. Even those who are considered imperfect, we're able to tell sometimes if there is a flaw. And surgeons today do amazing surgeries to help correct some of these things. If you bring up that next picture, do you remember ever seeing this? This was during heart surgery on a little child in the womb. And the womb is brought out, placed on the mother's belly. And as they were finishing the surgery, the little hand reaches up and grabs the finger of the surgeon. Oh, yes, this was an imperfect child. There is this idea that if someone is not perfect, perhaps they're not worthy of life. In the 1920s, in the salons of Europe, there was this phrase, it was called Lebens und Wertes Leben. In the, among the intellectuals, what does that mean? Life unworthy of life. Isn't that a chilling phrase? Life, unworthy of life. They don't use that anymore. It's a, it's a horrible phrase. Unless you're an advocate of euthanasia who says, well, now that you're old and your utility is no longer valuable to the common good, you're a Down syndrome person. You, you won't contribute intellectually. Uh, you're defective somehow. Lebens und Wertes Leben. It's dressed up in the language of choice and liberty. But let me tell you about that little guy in the womb who reached up and grabbed the finger of the surgeon. Go to the next slide. See that little guy in the green? That's the boy in the womb. And he said, I am so proud to be identified as someone who, yes, my body is not the perfect body. But even when I was in the womb, when that picture was given, he said, I am so pleased that I could give voice on behalf of those who so many in our world consider imperfect. And his life is rich and full. Would we dare say, Labens und Vertus Leben, of this delightful little guy? So we as Christians want to be united. We want to be untiring in our efforts to roll back this license to kill that started with the abandonment of the unborn just because they were tiny. The Bible says speak up on behalf of those who cannot speak up for themselves. Next slide. What does a Christian citizen do? They do three things. Education. 
and falls to you and to me to educate the people in our world. I'm not saying beat them over the head with the Bible. I'm saying enter into the public discourse and help people understand that it's a child, not a choice. Both Scripture and the light of nature teach us these things. Education is very important. Second is legislation. We encourage our state leaders and our national leaders to stand for life. It's going to be a very interesting next few years in some of the states. Did you see in the state of Kansas, one of the leading voices in the pro-life movement for several decades has been elected governor of the state of Kansas. It's just going to be interesting to watch and see if there are legislative initiatives that cause in, in bits and pieces in ways that promote life. And then support services. And here you and I, people like Peter and Terry Brown and others, we join in with the crisis care centers and the places like Mama's House, and we say we will support, encourage, help those who choose life. Listen, friends, we are not going to be defined by what we're against. We are pro-life. And it is a tragedy that our voice is not heard more loudly in New York City where 41% of all births end in abortion. So Christian citizens, let your voice be heard. Next slide. The next thing a Christian wants to affirm, according to the Manhattan Declaration, is to affirm marriage as a conjugal union of man and woman ordained by God from the creation and historically understood by believers and non-believers. This is not just believers who have seen this, but has been understood through the centuries to be the most uh, basic institution in society. It's the crowning achievement of God's creation. Now, right at this point, I need to say, it is not necessary that all people should be married. It's not necessary to be married. Jesus did not marry. It is not a sin to be unmarried. In fact, the New Testament actually gives honor to Christians who are unmarried. And the church somehow sometimes does this ridiculous thing of making unmarried people a second-class folks, and we need to repent of that because the Bible doesn't teach that if you're not married, you're somehow second-class or that it's wrong. But I do have to say, in society, through the centuries, civil society is grounded and rooted upon the family where there is care and nurture of children and where there is partnership, economic and emotional support together. And marriage is very important. And you would have to agree with me there has been a serious erosion of loving, faithful marriages in our country. Marriage matters. That's why in this church, I do a lot of premarital counseling. Pastor Martin does a lot of premarital counseling. Why? Because marriage is important. And by the way, in case you didn't know it, marriage is hard. Okay? It's not easy to be married. Marriage is great, but marriage is hard. And since marriage is hard, yes, there are, there are counterfeits. Uh, the, the greatest assault on marriage, by the way, 
is, is simple cohabitation, where people say, I want the benefits of marriage without entering into the responsibilities and the covenantal obligations of marriage. And we live in a culture that, by and large, that is uh, becoming more and more acceptable. There's no shame any longer associated with um, that, where, you know, how, the, how it generally goes. The woman gives sex in order to get love the, and some financial encouragement, and the, the man is willing to give some love and financial encouragement in order to get sex. Let's call it for what it is. Largely, that's the way it runs generally in this counterfeit of marriage. That's the great assault on marriage in our day. But now, if, if what I just described is the head-on assault, that counterfeit to marriage, now from the side is this movement among intellectuals and a political movement to say, let's just redefine marriage altogether. That's the easiest way to get rid of traditional marriage. We'll redesign it altogether. And we will, we will suggest alternatives to what Jesus talked about. A man will leave his father and mother, a man will, and cleave to his wife, his female wife, and the two become one flesh. And we will suggest that that is just a Christian patriarchal unfortunate uh, construction, and we need to do away with it. And every other edition of the Village Voice will make that argument loud and clear, or Salon, or Slate, or whatever it is. The Huffington Post. And we will suggest alternative kinds of unions, and maybe we'll call that marriage. And this is where we who hold to God's Word as our rule of faith and practice, and anybody whose eyes are half open to the light of nature, we'll know that those new definitions are spurious. So what's, what do you do if you want to redefine marriage? Here's what you do if you're really good at it. If you are an advocate of this new way, what you do is you call the traditional view hateful. That's what you do. You say, if, if you stand for the traditional view of marriage, you're a hater. Me, I'm a lover. You're a hater. And it was so fascinating to see how the public discourse uh, raged around Proposition 8 in California a year or two ago. Were you aware of that, where the citizens of California had this debate about whether to define marriage as uh, a man and a woman or not? And more money was spent on that election than on the governor's election. And it essentially went like this. One side said, we're in favor of the traditional view and we want the constitution of the state of California to affirm uh, marriage as between a man and a woman. And the other side said, no, you are haters. No hate. And I remember in the presidential campaign, John McCain, uh, the Republican nominee, he stood in favor of Proposition 8. But did you see this photograph? Bring that up, the next photograph of his wife. And here's this glamorous picture of Cindy McCain. It became, a, in my humble opinion, a puppet for the uh, pro-gay movement. And notice this very artfully done piece. It says, no H8. If you're in favor of Proposition 8, you put an H in front of it, and that becomes hate. 
See, you're a hater if you're in favor of Proposition 8. And what should you do? What should happen to you if you're in favor of Proposition 8? Look at the duct tape. You see, their opinion of the political discourse. No, we don't let people with hate speak. You can go to the clear the frame. The Manhattan Declaration says, no one has a civil right to have a non-marital relationship treated as a marriage. Sure, you can have all kinds of, of unions. You can have all kinds of contracts. We, we believe in freedom contractually. We do. Okay. But you can't call it a marriage unless it is a covenantal union of a husband and a wife. And it's the duty of the law to recognize and support it for the sake of justice and for the sake of the common good. So, what will Christian citizens do? Bring it up. Education, and then legislation, and then we will support marriage. What will you do? You can do this in your own conversations. You can make the case, certainly from Scripture, just quote Jesus about the nature of marriage. Always start with Jesus. Jesus said a man will leave his father and mother. The man will and cleave to his wife, and that's in the feminine and the two become one flesh. So we have it authoritatively from Jesus. But just the light of nature, just figure out how it works, and it should be preserved. Legislation, I think we should support pro-family laws and oppose laws that damage the development of the family. And then as a church, we should work to support marriages because marriage is hard. Like I said, it should not be entered into lightly, the Puritan said. Not entered into lightly or unadvisedly. I sound like an old Presbyterian. Well, I guess I am. You don't enter into it lightly because marriage is, is challenging, but marriage is good. So this is what Christian citizens will do. And then third, according to the Manhattan Declaration and consistent with the Word of God, the Christian wants to affirm religious liberty which is grounded in the character of God, which is grounded in the example of Christ, and we want to affirm the freedom and dignity that human beings should have. And we live out our religious convictions because we believe they come from God and from His Word, not because the government, which has the force of the sword, tells us what to believe. Now, this is very important, this little sentence here. We do not believe that the government should tell us what we should believe about religion. We don't. But, listen friends carefully, we also don't want to use the government to tell others that they should agree with us, too. In the New York Times, there's this interesting young writer named, uh, I might say it wrong, Ross Duthat, has anyone read him yet? His columns are fascinating. And uh, on, in January, he wrote this article, and he says this. He says, religious liberty offers religious believers a bargain. Here's what he says. You accept as price of citizenship that you may never impose your convictions on your neighbor or use state power to compel belief. In return, you will, be able, you will be free to practice your own faith as you fee, see fit 
and you will be free as well to compete with other believers and non-believers in the marketplace of ideas. And Duthat said the American experiment where there is no state church and where the Constitution guarantees our right to, li to religious liberty is a brilliant experiment and one that we should revel in. You see, in the Muslim world, uh, the Muslims are saying, yes, there should be freedom of religion until when? Until they're in the majority and then they want to use the sword to enforce Islam. Now, we're saying in our experiment, we will not do that. We should not do that. No one should do that. There should be freedom and then let the best horse win. You know, and since I'm riding a good horse, I want it to be free. Does that make sense to you? So the First Amendment of our Constitution, next frame, teaches, that, teaches us that we can follow conscience. But the First Amendment of our Constitution, bring it up, says this. Now, this is not the Bible, so now it is way subordinate to the Bible. But it's not beyond me to quote from the First Amendment of your Constitution, which says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. You get that? Or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble. What a blessing that we live in this country. And so, we should be on our guard because both the culture and, if we are not careful, the government will want to prohibit your free exercise of religion by calling it immoral and hateful that you preach from the book of Romans, that you teach the things that I've spoken here today that may be unpopular, but they need to be said. Next frame. As Christians, we take seriously the biblical command to respect and obey those in authority. We believe in law and the rule of law. We are to be good citizens. Next frame. But do you remember when the ruling authorities ordered Peter and John to stop preaching? What was their answer? Do you recall? Their answer was, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We've got to speak. And so they did. And so will you. And I know you will. In a right way. In a respectful way. The Bible says, let your speech be full of grace and seasoned with salt. Okay? We're not to be offensive. The cross of Jesus Christ is offensive. But you shouldn't be offensive. I shouldn't be offensive. Yeah, you can clear that. I signed the Manhattan Declaration. You can bring that up. Not as your pastor. I signed it as a Christian citizen. You should go to ManhattanDeclaration.org and decide for yourself whether you would be interested in signing that. But I did it because I personally am concerned about legislative and judicial actions that seek to deny any value to the innocent, that dismantle historic protections for the family, and have begun to encroach on religious liberties. And also because I love my country. I do love. I, every time, you know, you've allowed me to travel the world. Every time I come home, 
I'm happy to be home in America. I love living here. It is a privilege, and I do love our country. The apple illustration I told you, it's not surprising. Jesus Christ said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But Jesus also warned that there would be opposition. He warned us that people won't like the light, that people will want and cover it with a blanket. Why? The world doesn't like the light, John chapter 1 tells us. It is no surprise. Jesus himself said, the world will oppose me and the world will oppose you. Make no doubt about that. Jesus got opposition from the proud and the self-righteous who thought they were doing the world a favor. Yes, they thought they were doing the world a favor when they opposed him. Uh, did you catch that? People thought they were doing the world a favor when they opposed Jesus. And many people think they're doing the world a favor when they oppose God's ways. Little did they know that they crucified the Son of God and put to death the Holy One. And here's the amazing thing. He died willingly. He was not afraid to go in the right way, and he died willingly for his people, for all who receive him. Jesus will not let you perish. Even if they kill you, so what? What's the worst they can do? They send you to heaven. So don't be afraid. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and then he said something that blows your mind. He said, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Go in his name, and do not be afraid to stand and sing and love in his ways. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, we thank you for life. We thank you for families. We thank you for freedom that we may come here as the North Shore Community Church and hear a message like this. Thank you, our Father. We pray that um, if we're not sure yet about these things, that we would search your word. We pray that if we're intimidated, if we are intimidated, that we would be filled with your Holy Spirit, and you'd give us words to say and courage to speak. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would make us generous, generous with our emotional energy to love those who disagree with us. And, O oh Lord, may your truth triumph. Your truth does march on. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing an old spiritual now, and, um, and we're going to remember that, yes, there, please stand, yes.